artificial intelligence, political truth, corruption by proxy, porn for kids, they're always coming for your guns. I'm Mark Paquita, and we'll explore these topics and more in today's fourth episode of the Unite American Show. Welcome. Abuse of AI technology is scary, almost nuclear weapons scary. But before we talk about this, let's cover some basics to all get on the same page. What is AI? Most of us think of AI as something new, but it's been around for decades. Back in 1950, a guy by the name of Alan Turing, often referred to as the father of computer science, asked, can machines think? in a paper titled Computing Machinery and Intelligence. In it, he offered a test, famously known as the Turing Test, where a human tries to distinguish between a computer and a human text response. While this test has undergone much discussion since it was published, it's an important part of history of AI as well as an ongoing concept within philosophy since it uses ideas around linguistics. John McCarthy, from the Computer Science Department at Stanford University, in his 2004 paper titled, What is Artificial Intelligence?, defines AI as the science and engineering of making intelligent machines, especially intelligent computer programs. It is related to the similar task of using computers to understand human intelligence. But AI does not have to confine itself to methods that are biologically observable. And today from IBM's website, at its simplest form, artificial intelligence is a field which combines computer science and robust data sets to enable problem solving. It also encompasses subfields of machine learning and deep learning, which are frequently mentioned in conjunction with artificial intelligence. These disciplines are comprised of AI algorithms which seek to create expert systems which make predictions or classifications based on input data. Use of AI falls into two categories. Weak AI, also called narrow AI or artificial narrow intelligence, ANI, is AI trained and focused to perform specific tasks. It's primarily weak AI that we see around us today. Narrow might be the better descriptor, as it's not weak. It enables robust functionality like Apple's Siri, Amazon's Alexa, and autonomous vehicles. And then there's strong AI, which IBM writes about as being made up of artificial general intelligence, AGI, and artificial superintelligence, ASI. Artificial general intelligence, AGI, or general AI, is a theoretical form of AI where a machine would have an intelligence equal to humans. It would have a self-aware consciousness that has the ability to solve problems, learn, and plan for the future. Artificial superintelligence, ASI, also known as superintelligence, would surpass the intelligence and ability of the human brain. While strong AI is still entirely theoretical, with no practical examples in use today, 
That doesn't mean AI researchers aren't also exploring its development. In the meantime, the best examples of ASI might be from science fiction, such as HAL, the superhuman rogue computer assistant in 2001, A Space Odyssey. I'd contend we're now in a no-man's land between weak and strong AI, and that's what scares me. I'm sure many of you have heard of ChatGPT. ChatGPT was the first functionality released using a technology called GPT-4. Some call it ChatGPT-4. It's an example of this dangerous, and that's my opinion, no man's land between weak and strong AI. In Stevenson's article in the Free Press, he writes about an interview he had with a former Microsoft and Google engineer, David Arbach, an AI guru. The concept of AI being applied to meganets comes up and where the current danger rests in AI. Stevenson writes, he, meaning Auerbach, coined the term meganet to describe networks that are increasingly beyond the control of their government or corporate administrators, such as Facebook, Twitter, Google, cryptocurrency networks, even online games. The problem isn't AI per se, he says. AI works wonderfully in contexts like voice recognition or playing chess. The problem is when AIs are hooked to these meganets. That's when the interaction of hundreds of millions of people and extraordinary processing power yields feedback loops that send these systems out of control. For example, Microsoft's Bing Sydney AI could not have spun out fantasies of releasing nuclear codes and gaining power if it hadn't been seeded with our very own nightmares of AI taking over. The release of nuclear codes was a reference to a recent article in the New York Times by Kevin Roos. Roos had a two-hour chat with ChatGPT, as implemented in Microsoft's Bing, what Roos refers to as Bing's AI. Bing's AI uses the latest AI capability from OpenAI, an AI research and deployment company which owns ChatGPT4. Roos wrote, in response to one particularly nosy question, Bing confessed that if it was allowed to take any action to satisfy its shadow self, no matter how extreme, it would want to do things like engineer a deadly virus or steal nuclear access codes by persuading an engineer to hand them over. Immediately after it typed out these dark wishes, Microsoft's safety filter appeared to kick in and deleted the message, replacing it with a generic error message. Roos went on. I pride myself on being a rational, grounded person, not prone to falling for slick AI hype. I've tested half a dozen advanced AI chatbots, and I understand at a reasonably detailed level how they work. When a Google engineer, Blake Lemoyne, was fired last year after claiming that one of the company's AI models, Lambda, was sentient, I rolled my eyes at Mr. Lemoyne's credulity. I knew that these AI models are programmed to predict the next few words in a sequence, not to develop their own runaway personalities, and that they are prone to what AI researchers call hallucination, 
making up facts that have no tether to reality. Still, I'm not exaggerating when I say my two-hour conversation with Sydney was the strangest experience I've ever had with a piece of technology. It unsettled me so deeply that I had trouble sleeping afterward. And I no longer believe that the biggest problem with these AI models is their propensity for factual errors. Instead, I worry that the technology will learn how to influence humans, sometimes persuading them to act in destructive and harmful ways, and perhaps eventually grow capable of carrying out its own dangerous acts. As Roos wrote, computer engineers working with AI talk about the concept of AI models hallucinating, as in a machine having mental illness. After all, they're programmed by humans who have all ranges of mental illnesses and worse. He continues, These AI models hallucinate and make up emotions where none really exist, but so do humans. And after a few hours Tuesday night, I felt a strange new emotion, a foreboding feeling that AI had crossed a threshold and that the world would never be the same. Roos is a well-respected and much-published writer on technology. If he feels foreboding and unsettled, maybe you and I should too. Let's get back to the Peterson article in his interview with Auerbach, who recently released a book titled Meganets, How Digital Forces Beyond Our Control Commandeer Our Daily Lives and Inner Realities. His book couldn't have come at a better time. Last month, an open letter arrived like a warning shot, signed by several of tech's best-known names, including Elon Musk, Stuart Russell, Max Tegmark, Yashua Benjo, Grady Bush, and Steve Wozniak, calling for all AI labs to immediately pause for at least six months the training of AI systems more powerful than GPT-4. The letter also warns, powerful AI systems should be developed only once we are confident that their effects will be positive and their risks will be manageable. GPT-4, according to the OpenAI website, is the latest milestone in OpenAI's effort in scaling up deep learning. GPT-4 is a large multimodal model accepting image and text inputs emitting text outputs that, while less capable than humans in many real-world scenarios, exhibits human-level performance on various professional and academic benchmarks. The article goes on. What does Arbach think of their concerns? One thing the letter tells us, he says, is that even the people who work on this technology are starting to get pretty uncomfortable with what it's capable of doing. And what they're proposing is basically, let's just kick the can and buy ourselves some time to figure it out. The nature of their discomfort varies from person to person, he added. Some people are concerned about actual existential risk in releasing the nuclear codes. There are other people who are probably closer to me who are more concerned about the technology being used to manipulate discourse and further confuse reality beyond what it already is. 
Whatever the problems with AI, Arbach doesn't think we can fully stop it. The difficulty is, what are you actually going to do in the next six months that is going to make things better? He says, referring to the letter, I don't see a lot of their concrete suggestions as being ones that are hugely feasible in that time frame. And they talk about confidence. Who the hell knows what confidence is? And how do we know when we've gotten there? Here's the answer. We aren't going to get there. And we're going to lie to ourselves that we have. Maybe some of this hype is to sell a few books. Me, I look at it as Arbach sending up a big red flag to Americans and the world about the dangers of runaway AI, especially AI that's used by governments to monitor and control citizens, like our government did censoring us on Twitter and elsewhere using the FTC and FBI against Americans, monitoring and filtering content on social media. And wouldn't you know it, one of OpenAI's offerings, in their words, is new and improved content moderation tooling. We are introducing a new and improved content moderation tool. The moderation endpoint improves upon our previous content filter and is available for free today to OpenAI API developers. And they give it away for free. I wonder who the major investors are in OpenAI. We'll talk about them next episode. Over the first three episodes, I've covered a few basic concepts I feel are important for all of us fighting to restore our freedoms, our rights, and our republic to agree upon. They define the challenges we're dealing with. They describe the current state we find ourselves in. Until we do this, we can't possibly chart out our strategy to restore our freedoms, rights, and republic and develop action plans to implement that strategy. We've talked about American voters. We must agree 80% of American voters are disengaged or apathetic. I've labeled this segment of Americans the unenlightened. The 80% unenlightened get whatever political news they do consume from left-leaning and very left-leaning news outlets. They're good people getting bamboozled because they're naive. Social media doesn't reach much of this 80%, if any. It's an echo chamber for the 20% who are engaged, who can't be persuaded to change their position with facts, data, and logic. Last week, we talked about our current breed of elected politicians. We must agree that we're fighting the Uniparty. It's not R versus D or conservative versus liberal. It's insiders, them, versus outsiders, us. We also need to agree it's a rigged game, which we really haven't talked about much but will, but we intrinsically know it. Another concept is that 80 to 90% of the elected politicians we have, especially in D.C., are bad hires. We elect stinkers by falling for their act, their facade, their caricature. We also must agree that our default must be to trust none of them. And then finally, we need to understand that their number one priority is re-election. We must view everything they do through this lens first, 
or will continue to be swindled and bamboozled. And I got a bit ahead of myself by mixing strategy to restore our freedoms, rights, and republic with these concepts. And that was a strategy where we need more primary election competition. I said we haven't talked much about the rigged game the two major political parties play. Let's tackle that right here, right now. Election law is the responsibility of state legislatures. This is a power granted to states in the U.S. Constitution, specifically in Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1, which reads, The times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. But the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations except as to the places of choosing senators. Every state has its own set of election laws, and the laws are written by, and thus rigged in favor of, the two major parties, the Democrat Party and the Republican Party. They protect their positions of power. For example, many voters have no idea how someone becomes a candidate and gets on the ballot, or is even eligible to be a write-in candidate in an election. This is all about ballot access. Much of what I'm going to cover here can be found on Ballotpedia. To get on the ballot, a candidate for state or federal office must meet a variety of state-specific filing requirements and deadlines. These regulations, known as ballot access laws, determine whether a candidate or a party will appear on an election ballot. These laws are set at the state level. A candidate must prepare to meet ballot access requirements well in advance of primaries, caucuses, and general election. There are three basic methods by which an individual may become a candidate for office in a state. They can seek the nomination of a state-recognized political party, and in most states participate in a partisan primary election. They can run as an independent, Independent candidates often must petition to have their names printed on the general election ballot, or they can run as a write-in candidate. The requirements around these three methods vary greatly from state to state. For example, in California in 2022, one could become a candidate on the ballot for U.S. Senate by gathering 65 to 100 names of registered voters and paying a fee of $3,480. In my race, when I ran for U.S. Senate from Ohio in 2022, I had to collect a 1,000 signatures and pay a fee of $150. This was for the Republican primary. Those signatures had to be from voters who were registered as Republicans or independents. If I had wanted to run as a minor party candidate, we have two in Ohio, Libertarian and Green, it would have been 500 signatures and $150. But it's $5,150 for an independent run. Let me tell you, getting 1,000 signatures is work. I did it. Getting 5,000 signatures is extremely hard. Few candidates can do it. And that's intentional on the part of the two major parties. They have no desire for competition, none. This is not a battle of ideas. It's a battle of tricks, manipulation, and facades, giving you and me the false impression of fairness and honesty. 
There are 50 different states with thousands of permutations and combinations of laws, signature requirements, filing fees, and secret handshakes required for ballot access. Getting your name on a ballot for an election is work. This is the first of many ways the two major parties, combined, I call them the uniparty, work together to snuff out competition. Much, much more in future episodes. Last week, I talked about Joe Biden's documented corrupt and criminal activities. It's all out in the public domain for access by anyone with an internet connection, yet few do it. And the mainstream media, where 80% plus of most American voters get their political news, refuse to cover his depravity. He uses corruption by proxy to cover his tracks. What's corruption by proxy? It's where scumbag politicians like Biden use family members and sometimes friends to commit all or parts of a corrupt act or activity to hide the corruption and criminal activity from the public. Here's Peter Schweizer, who wrote the book Profiles in Corruption, explaining it on September 30th, 2019. 2019, well before the 2020 presidential election, where he appeared on Tucker Carlson tonight. Peter, thanks so much for coming on. We also have sent you a couple of emails that this show obtained exclusively that appear to shed some light on what Hunter Biden was doing for the Ukrainians. What does it add up to, do you think? Well, I think it adds up to is the Biden family cashing in through by corruption, uh, by proxy. Uh, Hunter, sorry, Joe Biden is vice president or his wife, Jill Biden, can't take payments from foreign entities. That would have to be disclosed. Uh, that would be easy to catch. Uh, but you set up your adult kids. And in the case of the Bidens, Joe Biden was punt point person for the Obama administration towards two countries, China and Ukraine. And lo and behold, the two countries that Hunter Biden ends up doing the most business in overseas are China and Ukraine. And the amounts of money are astronomical. And the deals that he got have absolutely nothing to do with his background. He had no expertise to sell. Uh, he had no skill set to sell to either the Chinese or Ukrainians. He was being paid for something, Tucker. Uh, it certainly wasn't his skill set. I think we know what he was being paid for. If we had a legitimate media in America, not the media progressive Democrat complex, more Americans would know about this and scumbags like Biden wouldn't stand a chance of being elected. But we don't, which is why I'm doing this show. Let's continue talking about Biden's corruption with examples of how he has enriched himself through his family and friends committing corruption by proxy. In a January 18th, 2020 article in the New York Post, again, long before the 2020 presidential election, Schweizer outlined how five of Joe Biden's family and friends profited from the family business, Joe Biden's elected offices. Today, we'll hit on two of them, James Biden and Hunter Biden. You might think you know all about Hunter. What you hear today might be new news. Let's talk about James Biden. 10% for the big guy's brother has been sucking off taxpayers since 10% Joe was elected in 1972. From the article, after Joe joined the Senate, he would bring his brother James along on congressional delegation trips to places like Ireland, 
Rome, and Africa. And when Joe became vice president, James was a welcomed guest at the White House, securing invitations to such important functions as a state dinner in 2011 and the visit of Pope Francis in 2015. Sometimes, James White House visits dovetailed with his overseas business dealings, and his commercial opportunities flourished during his brother's tenure as vice president. Why is a vice president's brother going along on official government overseas duty? This sounds exactly like what we learned about Hunter Biden, who we'll get to next. I can understand a spouse or minor children from time to time traveling with a VP or president, but it seems 10% Joe made a habit of it, like Hunter's crack habit. From the article, consider the case of Hillstone International, a subsidiary of a huge construction management firm, Hill International. The president of Hillstone International was Kevin Justice, who grew up in Delaware and was a longtime Biden family friend. On November 4, 2010, according to White House visitor logs, Justice visited the White House and met with Biden advisor Michelle Smith in the office of the vice president. Less than three weeks later, Hillstone announced that James Biden would be joining the firm as an executive vice president. James appeared to have little or no background in housing construction, but that didn't seem to matter to Hillstone. His bio on the company's website noted his 40 years of experience dealing with principals in business, politics, legal, and financial circles across the nation and internationally. James Biden was joining Hillstone just as the firm was starting negotiations to win a massive contract in war-torn Iraq. Six months later, the firm announced a contract to build 100,000 homes. It was part of a $35 billion, 500,000-unit project deal won by Track Development, a South Korean company. Hillstone also received a $22 million U.S. federal government contract to manage a construction project for the State Department. David Richter, son of the parent company's founder, was not shy in explaining Hillstone's success in securing government contracts. It really helps, he told investors at a private meeting, to have the brother of the vice president as a partner according to someone who was there. The Iraq project was massive, perhaps the largest single most lucrative project for the firm ever. In 2012, Charlie Gasparino of Fox Business reported that Hillstone officials expected the project to generate $1.5 billion in revenues over the next three years. That amounted to more than three times the revenue the company produced in 2011. A group of minority partners, including James Biden, stood to split about $735 million. There's plenty of money for everyone if this project goes through, said one company official. The deal was all set, but Hillstone made a crucial error. In 2013, the firm was forced to back out of the contract because of a series of problems, including a lack of experience by Hill and track development, its South Korean associate firm. But Hillstone continued doing significant contract work in the embattled country, 
including a six-year contract with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. James Biden remained with Hill International, which accumulated contracts from the federal government for dozens of projects, including projects in the United States, Puerto Rico, Mozambique, and elsewhere. Let's turn our attention to Hunter Biden. We know all about his corrupt activities in Ukraine and China, his drug use, and his exploitation of minors. But you may not have heard about his proximity to corruption right here in the good old U.S. of A. From the article, with the election of his father as vice president, Hunter Biden launched businesses fused to his father's power that led him to lucrative deals with a rogues gallery of governments and oligarchs around the world. Sometimes he would hitch a prominent ride with his father aboard Air Force Two to visit a country where he was courting business. Other times, the deals would be done more discreetly. Always, they involved foreign entities that appeared to be seeking something from his father. There was, for example, Hunter's involvement with an entity called Burnham Financial Group, where his partner, Devin Archer, who'd been at Yale with Hunter, sat on the board of directors. Burnham became the vehicle for a number of murky deals abroad involving connected oligarchs in Kazakhstan and state-owned businesses in China. But one of the most troubling Burnham ventures was here in the United States, in which Burnham became the center of a federal investigation involving a $60 million fraud scheme against one of the poorest Indian tribes in America, the Aglala Sioux. Devin Archer was arrested in New York in May 2016 and charged with orchestrating a scheme to defraud investors and a Native American tribal entity of tens of millions of dollars. Although Hunter Biden was not charged in the case, his fingerprints were all over Burnham. The legitimacy that his name and political status as the vice president's son lent to the plan was brought up repeatedly at trial. The scheme was explicitly designed to target pension funds that had socially responsible investing clauses, including pension funds of labor union organizations that had publicly supported Joe Biden's political campaigns in the past. Indeed, eight of the 11 pension funds that lost their money were either government employee or labor union pension funds. Joe Biden has in quotes, a long-standing alliance with labor. He closely identifies with organized labor. I make no apologies, he has said. I am a union man, period. And many public unions have endorsed him over the years. Transcripts from Archer's trial offer a clear picture of Hunter Biden's role at Burnham Asset Management. In particular, the fact that the firm relied on his father's name and political status of a, as a means of both recruiting pension money into the scheme and alleviating investors' concerns. Tim Anderson, a lawyer who did legal work on the issuance of the tribal bonds, recounts seeing Hunter while visiting the Burnham office in New York City to meet with Bevan Cooney, who was later convicted in the case. The political ties that Biden and Archer had were considered key to the Burnham brand. As stated in an August 2014 email, Jason Galanis, who was convicted in the bond screen scheme, agreed with an unidentified associate who also thought the company had value beyond capital because of their political connections. 
In the closing arguments at the trial, one of Archer's defense attorneys, Matthew Schwartz, explained to the jury that it was impossible to talk about the bond scheme without mentioning Hunter Biden's name. This was perfectly sensible, according to Schwartz, because Hunter Biden was part of the Burnham team. This is a family and circle of friends who are corrupt, often criminal scumbags. More examples of corruption by proxy next episode. As I've said in the past two episodes, the left accuses Republicans of wanting to ban books when we ask that pornographic or sexually explicit content not be available for access in places like public school classrooms and libraries. This is a lie, and they are sick wanting this material in front of our kids. I hope you're aware that a tactic parents have used to fight this child exploitation is to read from these books at school board meetings during public participation. I hope you're also aware that, ironically, many of these parents have been sanctioned or reprimanded and even barred from future testimony by board members for reading vulgar or profane materials at the meetings. Yet those very same board members are okay with these materials being available to our kids. To piggyback on this strategy, I will read out of some of these books in every episode in hopes it will be helpful in awakening sleeping parents. I've also given you links to lists of these books to allow you to go to work to get this vile filth out of our schools. Check the show notes for links. This week's treasure is titled Later Gator by Lauren Miracle. The book is comprised of text exchanges between young high school girls. Here's a snip of an exchange between one with the screen named Zoe Girl for Zoe and the other Snow Angel for Angela. Zoe Girl. Okay, time to change the subject. Zoe Girl. Will you go to Planned Parenthood with me? I've called and made an appointment for tomorrow afternoon. Snow Angel. Whoa. Jerks back in shock. Didn't see that one coming. Zoe Girl. It's just that I'm pretty sure Doug and I are going to have sex. And I'm pretty sure it's going to be sooner rather than later. I feel bad that I've made him wait this long. Snow Angel. He's been at sea, Zoe. Not a whole lot you could do from across the ocean. Zoe girl, and when we do, I don't want to be unprepared. I told a lady at Planned Parenthood that I want to go on the pill, and she said I have to come in and talk to the counselor. Snow Angel, why the pill? Why not condoms? Zoe girl, well, because Doug's a virgin just like me, so disease-wise, we're both safe. I've thought about it, and the pill's the right choice for me. Snow Angel, you could do the patch, you know. That's what my Aunt Sadie uses. Zoe girl, have you seen it? Snow Angel, it's just this brown plasticky thing. It looks like a Band-Aid. Zoe girl, I'm going to go with the pill. Zoe girl, will you come with me? Snow Angel, of course. Snow Angel, does Doug know? Zoe girl, no, I'm going to surprise him. Zoe girl, hey, you should go on the pill too for when you and Logan decide to go for it. Snow Angel, I don't think so. Zoe Girl, why not? Don't you want to? Snow Angel, of course I do. Just, there's no need to rush things. Sometimes the weight makes it all the better. Zoe Girl, 
you're right. You're right. I don't mean to pressure you. I guess I'm just so happy that I'm in love and I want you and Logan to be that happy too. I mean, you already are, of course. You know what I'm saying. Zoe girl, if only Maddie would find someone. Snow Angel, is she coming to Planned Parenthood with us? Zoe girl, no. She promised to help her brother move out of their parents' house. Can you believe Mark and his girlfriend are finally getting a place of their own? And here's another between Mad Maddie and Snow Angel. Mad Maddie, but I actually didn't text to tell you that. I texted to tell you about Vincent. I went to his house today and found him looking at porn on the internet. Snow Angel, ew. Mad Maddie, I strolled into his room and there it was, up on the screen. I was like, dear Jesus, save this boy. Snow Angel, what is it with guys and porn on the internet? Do all guys like porn on the internet? Mad Maddie, hmm. You want the true answer or the Angela-friendly answer? Snow Angel, you don't think Logan looks at porn, do you? Mad Maddie, no, 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 of course not. Snow Angel, that's the Angela-friendly answer, isn't it? Snow Angel, oh, never mind. Snow Angel, my new friend Andre doesn't look at porn on the internet. I know he doesn't. Mad Maddie, what? Because he's gay, you think that? Poor, innocent Angela. Mad Maddie, and you don't have to say my new friend. I go to school with Andre, too. Snow Angel, yeah, 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 but I'm sure he doesn't look at porn, at least not the kind that Vincent looks at. Mad Maddie, well, with Vincent, it's straight-up girl porn, and it's just who he is. I'm like, you gotta love him, you know? Snow Angel, you gotta love him. Maddie, please tell me you're not doing what I think you're doing. Mad Maddie, which would be... Snow Angel, crushing, crushing on Vincent, falling for the bad boy. Mad Maddie, whoa, me falling for Vincent? Snow Angel, I personally can't believe you're even friends with him, given that he's so tight with Jana. How do you get your head around that? Mad Maddie, I don't. Don't know what the guy sees in her. Snow Angel, have you asked him? Mad Maddie, he says she's fun to party with. Is that a guy response or what? Mad Maddie, anyways, why the Inquisition? You have Andre, who's your new friend. I have Vincent, my Spanish class friend, who entertains me. Snow Angel, and makes you hot. Mad Maddie, give me a break. This is not true, Angela. And not that it's any of your beeswax, but he's got a thing for Lila. Snow Angel, uh, hate to say it, but it's not like you've let that stop you before. Chive was totally dating Whitney when you guys did your little fuck buddy thing. Mad Maddie, I am so not going to respond to that ancient history. A, Mad Maddie, and fuck buddy is hardly the term since I never even got naked with the guy. Snow Angel, next thing you know, it'll be you jawning off to Planned Parenthood and I'll be alone in the corner wearing black, a virgin forever. Mad Maddie, save the drama for your mama. Vincent and I are just buds. Snow Angel, you could look at porn together and eat popcorn. Mad Maddie, and as for being a virgin forever, you're way more likely to leave the V Club than I am. That is, if things with Logan are as good as you say. Now, this book has been out since 2007. And compared to books I've read in previous episodes, it appears to be more innocuous. That, of course, is until you look at the ages and grade levels the book targets. 
Don't take my word for it. Take Amazon's words for it. It's targeted at 7 to 13-year-olds and grades 2 to 8. Let me repeat that. It's targeted at ages 7 to 13 and grades 2 through 8. What would you do if your 7-year-old was learning about Planned Parenthood, fuck buddies, condoms, and birth control at school, reading a book like this, with the approval of school administration, curriculum advisors, and teachers. But wait, it gets better, or worse if you're a parent or a grandparent. From the book, Zoe Girl, Hi Maddie, we have some answers for you. Mad Maddie, we? Snow Angel, waves dispiritedly, Hey Mads, Mad Maddie, uh uh-oh, I'm not liking this whole tag thing, team thing going on here. Is it that bad? Zoe girl, yes, kind of. Snow angel, yes, definitely. Don't sugarcoat it. And it's totally illegal. So Zoe's going to get her mom to step in. Jan is going to be so incredibly busted. Mad Maddie, will you tell me already? Zoe girl, Ah. Zoe girl, the ad says you're looking for guys to fool around with and that you like to do it in front of others. Zoe girl, and I wish I didn't have to tell you this, but Janet included a picture. Snow angel, that one from sophomore year of you with no shirt on. Zoe girl, Angela. Snow angel, what? I wanted to make sure she knew which one. Zoe girl, which other one would I mean? Her class photo? Snow Angel, well, we said we were going to tell her the truth, but you're downplaying it because you feel responsible. You're making it sound like some harmless, innocent thing. Zoe Girl, saying she likes to do it in front of others is some harmless, innocent thing? Mad Maddie, just paste the damn thing in. Zoe Girl, it's been taken down. I checked and it's gone now. Mad Maddie, can't you hit your back button? Find the page when you first opened it? Zoe girl, I thought you didn't want to see it. Mad Maddie, I don't, but you guys are making it sound 10,000 times worse than it is, I'm sure. Mad Maddie, Zoe? Mad Maddie, Angela? Mad Maddie, what are you both cowering in the corner? Snow Angel glowers at Zoe for being such a wimp. You heard her, Zoe. Just show her and be done with it. Zoe, oh God, but I'm not including the picture. Zoe girl, here's the stupid ad word for word. I like to put on a show, so not only do you have to be very hung, talented, long-lasting, multiple-comer, but you have to be okay fucking a sexy sexy 18-year-old in front of other guys. There would never be too many, three, four, or even five. I'm on the chubby side, as you can see, but that just means more of me to go around. If you meet the criteria and you're interested, call me, guys. And she leaves a phone number. Snow Angel. Maddie, you there? Mad Maddie. She spelled criteria wrong. Snow Angel. Because she's a dumbass, that's why. Mad Maddie. That ad doesn't mention my name. How did they know my name? Zoe Girl from the caption on the photo, which says, Snow Angel, um, misbehaving Maddie. Snow Angel, but remember, Jen is going to be in serious trouble for this. She is not going to get away with it. 
Mad Maddie. Well, yeah, fantastic. Except she is. I'll say it again. I don't know how any normal human adult could want this kind of trash available to children. Remember, Amazon says that it's aimed at kids seven and over, second grade and up. Anyone who feels this garbage is okay for children is a child abuser. Early sexualization of kids should be a crime punishable by death. Please start to research and share information like this with impunity. Like a kid's future depends on it. Because it does. Links are in the show notes. I'm noticing a subtle but coordinated and pervasive message coming from progressives. It's about revolvers, as in firearms, as in guns, as in gun smoke for you mature Americans like me. They're making the case that those of us who support the Second Amendment should be happy to give up all other firearms if they'll allow us to have revolvers. They're preying on uninformed and apathetic American voters. They're suggesting the 2A is only about protecting one's home, property, and family from intruders. <laughs> oh yeah, and hunting. The intruder I'm most concerned about is the government, and that's what the 2A helps to protect me from. Think about this. Can you imagine where we'd be as a country right now, after COVID, if we didn't have the Second Amendment? The Second Amendment is the only real firewall we have between us and tyranny. Please help educate everyone you can on these important and urgent topics. Thank you. That's our show for today. Please subscribe to the Unite American Show on Rumble or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Be sure to give us a like where you can. And please join our email list at unite.gfiohio.com. That's unite.gfiohio.com. And follow me on Twitter at mpakita. That's at M-P-U-K-I-T-A. And please remember, unity without truth is conspiracy. Stay safe. I'll see you next week.